The challenges and the rewards of working in a small flight department. What do you need to know to make it work? From the National Business Aviation Association, this is Flight Plan. I'm Pete Combs with your trusted source for business aviation news. Flight departments, of course, come in all sizes, but you might be surprised to know that about 80% of flight departments have two aircraft or less, making them, by our own definition, small flight departments. And that means a very different set of challenges and rewards compared to companies with larger flight departments. For instance, David Keyes, who chairs the Small Flight Department Subcommittee of the NBAA Domestic Operations Committee, is chief pilot at Peace River Citrus Products. He's coming to us from Arcadia, Florida. Peace River flies a Citation Latitude operated by a two-person flight department. James Stone is Director of Aviation at AFLAC in Columbus, Georgia. AFLAC has a fleet of two Gulfstream G280 aircraft. And from Lawrence, Kansas, Jeff Long, whose flight department consists of a Cessna CJ-4. Guys, thanks for taking some time to talk with us here on NBAA's Flight Plan. Jimmy, I want to start with you there in Columbus. From the 30,000-foot level, what are some of the challenges you face that perhaps a larger flight department doesn't? I think sometimes there's a challenge with uh, just resources, uh, having enough resources to do what you need to do. Uh, we do enjoy at my company uh, getting the resources that we need. So a lot of times it's just about asking and planning and you know, really looking at your strategy and making sure you're planning ahead for, for what you need. That's, that's one of the things we do enjoy here is if, if we do need the, a resource of a specific kind, I usually can't get that. Um, so it's really the... Uh, uh, the onus is on me to uh, and my team here to really plan ahead and speak up for what we need and just go from there. We, we work very closely with our uh, our leaders here in the company to to provide uh, what they're looking for, and we're very uh, open and honest with what it will take to accomplish that. I would imagine with uh, a much more finite range of resources, planning becomes a real exercise in, in diplomacy, in and forethought. Tell me a little bit about that. Go ahead, Dave. Oh, well, uh, we approach it different, though, because we are owned by one principle. So I, our planning is, is more of conversation than it is to sit down and and, uh, and, and budget out. Uh, and I give the example, we don't have a budget. I don't. I, I do not have a budget. He knows the airplane costs a certain amount of money to operate. And when I need something, uh, he, says, he either says, yeah, go do it. If it's a safety flight, if issue or, or a service bulletin, there's no question. He says, in fact, his directive is just get it done. What I find in a small, in my department, and I find a lot of small departments operate this way, it's a good and bad. In other words, I'm not held accountable to a budget, but yet I'm held accountable that I'm spending the money efficiently and effectively. So when it comes to resources, it's, it's uh, in, in what a small department, a single airplane, two pilot, there's kind of a give and take. So we don't, we can't be like Jamie to go, okay, we're going to put in the budget for a flight planning software when it's just the two of us. So the, it's more of a conversation than it is a, a, a planning process. In a, it, 
And I, I hear that quite frequently on, on small departments that are, that are single owner operator, a high net worth individual. It's, it's, uh, it's more of a conversation than it is a budget process. Jeff Long at the University of Kansas. How do you guys do it there? Uh, we have been operating aircraft at the University of Kansas for many years, uh, you know, around 50 years. And, of course, we've had an assortment of different airplanes. But I believe that the, the single most important thing that has allowed us to plan for a given year is that we have tracked the historical data of expenses and activity uh, to great depth. So when I sit down to plan the next fiscal year, I'm able to look at what different customers, uh, customers being uh, KU Med Center or KU Athletics, and what they did the previous year, talk to their supervision about what the new year might look like. And that historical data provides us with excellent estimates for the future year. The second item that has really helped us is we have put our newest airplane, the CJ-4, which is a 2014 model, on all three programs uh, for maintenance. So it's on the engine program. It's on a parts program. It's also on a labor program. So we know exactly uh, what it's going to cost based on the hours that we fly the airplane. And that, again, is a, is a process which allows us to be very good about estimating how much our expenses are going to be for the year. Right. And I give you the perfect example we just went through. We just had a huge inspection done three years, and um, I added eight cars to the airplane, which was about a $30,000 expenditure. It, it, because we are, we do want to be in a position to do international flight. We'd have all the LOAs. And so with the, the uh, rollout of, of CPDLC, we needed to have eight cars. And then eventually the next step would be to add the CPDLC portion of it. Um, so I just lay out that, uh, you know, send an email, said this is just a heads up. This, we're going to incur this cost, but it prepares us for what future navigation is going to be. And and, the, and if we go overseas, we're going to have to have to have this equipment. And he, and he goes, okay. So that's kind of the versus, I think, and Jamie will speak to this, but a larger d- department where a lot of the bigger operators, okay, that would have had to been put into a budget the year before and and accounted for and planned on. And uh, ours was kind of like, well, no, it's coming up. Here's an opportunity to add the equipment. When you're operating on, on such a thin line, and what I mean by that obviously is that you don't have a lot of backup aircraft, you don't have a lot of backup personnel. Uh, how, did, how does safety come into this? And, and how is that a different conversation than if you were in a larger flight department with more aircraft and more personnel? David? Oh, hugely. I, and I think that's the biggest issue that faces small flight departments. Personally, I see it in ours. To be conscious of uh, compromising safety versus wanting to get the mission done. Uh, and I, I, I raise the issue that it's it, we're, we're two pilots in one airplane and, and we're facing a safety decision, maybe a, a, a mission that, we're, that we know is important to the company. And are we each in a position to objectively analyze the safety risk? And if there is a risk to either mitigate it or decide to not go? Um, I think with, you know, I've been doing this for 40 something years, so I'm, I'm in a position to say, 
no. And I've told the boss that you pay me to say no at times when I, when I know it's not safe. I think with some of the younger managers that I've talked to that are, that have not had the experience, um, they'll push that envelope because they understand the importance of the mission and, and what as an industry, how should we go about addressing that? What resources can we bring to bear to, to help departments like mine mitigate safety issues? Um, there's no, I've been talking to the safety committee. We don't have a solution yet. I mean, there, there's a lot of ideas, but I think it's one of the biggest issues facing us. We're fortunate that we do have net jets as a, uh, as an option, we buy a NetJets card every year, and there have been times when we've, the airplane broke and we needed to substitute in a NetJets airplane. Um, a lot of small operators don't have that option, so when the single airplane breaks, they're they're either canceled or they're you know, or the pressure is to get it done, or the weather's down. That's kind of where I see the biggest pressure. Um, yeah, the your below minimums, but I really need to make this this meeting um, and, and to be able to say, yeah, no, it's, it's not going to happen. So a bigger department uh, has the resources and has the capability. If an airplane breaks, they can substitute in another airplane or they have, a, a, they also, a lot of the larger departments have shares with, in either NetJets or FlexJet or one of the, where they could bring in another airplane to, to accomplish the mission. They also have SOPs that say, no, we're, this is, you know, uh, duty rigs and uh, weather minimums and it's understood from top to bottom small departments with a with a high net worth donor his motivation is he has to make money and once again we're fortunate that our owners owned airplanes for a long time so he understands the challenges that, that uh, our main operating plant is at a uh, arcadia florida and it's a 3700 foot runway um that's a challenge for us. And, and I basically said, if it's wet, we're, we're not, we can't operate in and out of there. It's a VFR airport. So over the 20 some years that he's owned airplanes, he understands that there are just days when we can't land at Arcadia. We'll have to go to Punta Gorda or, or some other option or not go. Um, but it is a challenge for small operators. Jeff certainly be a great place for him to jump in because he's a single operator for a public institution. Thanks for the uh, uh, teeing that one up uh, for me, David. I would just comment on a couple of different things with regard to the safety and and our particular situation. I would say uh, this. We have a terrific situation uh, because we do have a supplemental uh, lift uh, available to us in the form of a fraction of an airplane with executive airshare, which is now called airshare, and they're located just 30 miles away at the downtown airport in Kansas City. And they do provide supplemental lift for us when we have multiple trips on the same day, when our aircraft needs to be in maintenance, when we have, uh, when we've been off station and the airplane's been grounded for a maintenance issue, or when we've got, uh, you know, we have limited personnel and we've, we've got, you know, personal or uh, vacation plans we can use uh, AirShare to, to step in for us. Um, it, it also has helped us in this way because our customers have become aware that um, we can operate a little bit more um, aggressively uh, as a Part 91 operator than 
our fractional company and operating under Part 135 rules. So I think they appreciate that uh, now because they've seen that there are some situations where we can be completely safe and yet we can go when a Part 135 operator cannot go. And then I would say this about safety. We have never been uh, pushed by our principals. Um, we, we have every latitude to make a decision that is based on the rules and on safety, and, and in, we're not questioned about it. My people know that if they make a decision that I am not going to put them in jeopardy or question their calls. We might talk about it uh, before and after the decision is made, but um, I'm not going to question it, and there's not going to be any repercussion of that decision. Um, and then finally, I would, I would say this about safety. I, I think it's, uh, for, for most aviators that have been in the business for a long time, it's in their DNA. Um, it certainly is for me, and that might be largely because I'm a conservative person, but I, I think safety is a mindset. It's like always uh, part of the equation, whether it's uh, what we're doing in our hangar uh, on the ground, whether we're taxiing or when we're flying. It is just part of every single decision. And we always take a look at when we have challenging conditions, um, weather or a long day or a short runway, um, we look at the what ifs. If something happens and the, uh, our, our trip is looked at afterwards, what's it going to appear to be? Is it going to appear that we broke a rule or that we took too many chances or that we were being cowboys. And if it is, then we are not going to do that. And uh, I, I think we've communicated that um, well over the last six and a half years since I've been here. And so everybody's on the same sheet of music and it, it, it works well for us. Sure. Jamie, take a stab at that if you would. Sure. I think, and I'll try my best to articulate uh, in a way that's easy to understand, but you know, this, this concept Dave talks about with uh, uh, resources, um, the, I think the benefit to the larger organization, uh, if you want to compare and contrast you know, large versus small, um, I think is spreading that workload out, uh, the day-to-day the -day overall management of the flight department and the organization and the safety management and spreading that over a larger number of people. So, for instance, where, where you know you have an individual who's the uh, the chief pilot and one of the the two pilots, with, like in Dave's situation, where um, he handles everything for the organization. So he's he's involved in all of those decisions from you know the the strategy of what they're doing and where they're going next and that kind of a thing, all the way down to the go no go decision uh, for the flight and uh, and shouldering all that responsibility. He and his his uh, pilot he's flying with i think the if i could use the term luxury that you might have on a larger organization would be you spread some of those decisions and that um and those concepts out to a larger framework so you might have a safety officer or you might have um more developed sops you might even have a standard standardization a training captain uh those kind of things to where you're you're integrating safety and those safety concepts into your organization from a a large scale. And so by the time that um, a trip, for instance, gets down to the, the pilot in command for a decision at the go-no-go no go point, it's probably already been filtered through some other um, 
you know, pieces of your safety management system, whether it be your, your flight planning or your, uh, from the time that your scheduler might have put that into the computer, there might be a risk assessment uh, piece component to that, that scheduling. And then um, when it gets entered into, you know, whether it's an electronic system or a manual system, there's a risk assessment process that takes place that instead of being uh, focused on one individual, it's, it's spread across multiple individuals or maybe even a larger structure, a larger framework. So I think that's kind of something that when you talk about resources, I think that's something that um, benefits the large, larger organizations if used appropriately. How does that conversation or how does that thought process change when you, the flight operator, are also the C-suite? You're the guy up front and you're the guy in the front office. It changes a lot, and that, that's that's a unique uh, challenge for for uh, pilots and and uh, the management within a flight department to deal with a C-suite person or a high net worth individual who's also flying the airplane, and to be able to say, "Yeah, boss, I don't think this is a great idea. They've got severe icing where we're going. Let's 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 bag this." The the what I tell young guys and what I've found through my experience is you have to set the expectations up front. You have to have that conversation with the, the boss. So just like when I came to work for this company, I sat down and had a conversation and said, you know, you pay me to tell you no sometimes, and, and it may not be convenient for you, but in, in the long run, if it, if it's a safety issue that, that I just feel no, then, then I'm going to say no. And so too many uh, small flight department managers don't have those upfront conversations. So the expectation is, well, we're always going to go. And I, I encourage young guys to, to when they get hired or if they're in the get promoted, uh, sit down and have that conversation with the C-suite to say, this is, this is how I operate. And these are the expectations. So when it does come back around, you can say, remember that conversation we had about me saying, no, this is the time. Um, and so to encourage that conversation, I think that's that's one of the the challenges for the small operator versus the, the corporate operator that has the bigger department that has the buffer that says, you know, that's our procedure says no. So we're just no is no. Um, the other option, uh, the other uh, I tell folks is to have some kind of write it down, put it in some kind of operation that the that the uh, C-suite signs off on. So that there is an agreement so that when there, an issue comes up, you can say, well, wait a minute, you agreed to this in our ops manual. Um, we're not going to, you know, we're, we're not going to commit uh, flying for 14 hours today because you agreed that whatever 10 or 12 or whatever the, the duty day is that you've agreed to. Um, so th th those conversations are better placed in the sit down office ahead of time so that when the the heat comes, you can point back to it. Yeah. And Jamie, I would imagine a lot of those conversations include the word. Yeah. But because it's, somebody's always going to want to make an exception of, of, uh, you know, of the rules that you've set down exactly as David just described them. There are those individuals that, that try that. And, you know, a little bit different scenario than what Dave is speaking of. And, you know, your, your question related to, a C-suite individual being in the front end, um, you know, we are, all of us are motivated to get the job done. There's, there's no doubt about that. And, and there's, there can be a tendency for people to want to 
uh, again, use the, like you said, uh, yeah, but. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, you have to come down to, um, you have to be very focused on uh, assessing risk and you have to be able to compartmentalize um, the mission and separate from uh, you know the the desire to get it done and and those types of things. You have to be able to separate that desire from the reality of what you're about to undertake. And there are times when um, when you look at things in totality, uh, look at the trip or the the mission, so to speak, in, in totality, um, that you're just you should not be doing it. And um, so when when those types of situations come up, um, you know it's very important that your people are empowered to 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 say no, that we're not, we're not going to undertake this mission or this trip. And, and here's why, um, you know, it scored this level in our risk assessment process, or I just, you know, in my professional opinion, it's just, it's not something we should be doing. And, um, you know, back to Dave's point, um, it's very important that those conversations be had up front with those people who you serve, uh, to make sure that the understanding is there that, um, you know, the end decision is going to come down to that pilot in command. Um, and once, once that decision is made, it's very important that they be supported. You, you know, you, you don't want to, you don't want a, a culture that, that takes those kinds of risks and, uh, and pushes the, the envelope too much. Jeff, what about the pressure of being both the C-suite person and the flight deck person? We are not in that situation where we have a C-suite uh, person that's also operating the airplane, but but I do agree with David in that it's very important to have had these conversations uh, before so that there is an expectation that when we do have a situation that could be a no-go situation because of uh, weather or other conditions, then you need to fully analyze it and, and have that conversation. So what we try and do at KU is fully analyze um, the, the weather and the, the, the situation for what it is. If we are taking a group for a, an evening uh, event and we're going to be on the ground for three hours, then you've got to look at if, if we have thunderstorm activity, as an example, that's going to pass through, what do we do with the airplane when uh, that thunderstorm does come through? Is there ability there to hangar that airplane and keep it safe? Or do you take off and go somewhere else while that system passes through and then come back and pick up your passengers. And if that system remains consistent throughout the evening, are those passengers willing to spend the night and come home the next day? These are things that you just put in front of them so that they can be part of the decision. That's Jeff Long, who's the chief pilot at the University of Kansas, speaking to us from Lawrence. Also with us from Arcadia, Florida, is Peace River Citrus chief pilot Dave Keyes. He's also the chairman of the MBAA Small Flight Department Subcommittee. And from Columbus, Georgia, the head of the flight department at Aflac Incorporated, Jamie Stone. There'll be a lot more on this topic at the Small Operator Symposium at NBAA Base in Las Vegas. You can learn more about that and register at nbaa.org 2019. And that's the latest from the National Business Aviation Association. Remember, you can subscribe to all Flight Plan podcasts at Apple's iTunes website, wherever you find your favorite podcasts, or download them from nbaa.org. I'm Pete Combs. Thanks for listening to Flight Plan.